Welcome to the TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about what they find interesting in tech this week. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh62. This week, we have three hosts. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment feature on the internet, and the meme site randysrandom.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer at MacMost.com. And also, I do stuff over at WPTipsAndHacks.com, and I make mobile games. You can find those at CleverMedia.com. And I'm Leo Notenboom, Chief Question Answerer out at AskLeo.com. I'm also the publisher of a couple of non-techie sites, NotAllNewsIsBad.com. I call it a daily antidote for everything else, and Lord knows we need it. And HeroicStories.org, twice-weekly stories of people being good people. That's a lot of stuff. So, Leo, are you uh, calling in from the Netherlands today? (laughs) Or or, or from like the 1920s or something. Yeah, you sound a little (laughs) thin, not your usual robust self. Yeah, so uh, in response to some of the the concerns or questions, I guess, about the audio level on the other mic, uh, which actually is sitting to my my right here, um, I've donned a a Plantronics headset, and I'm using it tonight instead of that. I can move my head around all I want, um, and the mic stays in front of my mouth. Uh, The downside is it's not the same high-quality professional-grade mic that, um, that we have been using. So it'll be interesting. There were some decent headsets. I mean, Gary's is a headset, and it's yeah. really good, and I wanted one, but it's not available anymore. Right, right. Mine's a, a Logitech a USB H390, which is inexpensive. Uh, and, you know, obviously it does the job, but it just doesn't sound quite as good. And that's really a shame. Yeah, mine is, uh, we were talking before the show, mine is a Plantronics 510, which I don't know if they've made in the last 20 years. Um, and clearly, I don't know, I guess today's market just doesn't support a high-end headset like this one, so they, it's just hard to find. There's got to be there's got to be a market. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, certainly they're out there somewhere. I, I suspect that without you know <laughs> buying a headset, trying it, buying a headset, trying it. I mean, you could go through a lot of them with that you know with that technique. There have to be some some relatively, I don't want to say professional quality, but certainly somewhere between what I'm using now and what I used last week. Well, maybe if any listeners have a suggestion for that would be awesome. Um, to I would love it. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, Randy, did you get some resolution yet with uh, your wife's computer? We did. Um, They sent us a new computer. They haven't sent us a label to send the old one back yet, which is kind of interesting. They they don't seem to be uh, too chomping at the bit to get it back. But um, the interesting thing is that I asked the customer support guy, hey, if I paid the the difference, could I – upgrade the the hard disk in this because it was kind of small. And uh, he basically said, no, it has to be the very same spec, but I'll just send you the bigger hard disk. So he just put in that we had trouble with the hard disk and uh, sent me a brand new one. He says, I assume you can, uh, you can swap this in. I said, yeah. So put it in there. It was, you know, nice, to have all that extra room. And then I was looking at this little postage stamp that I had taken out and noticed that there was another slot inside the computer that said, 
it was for SSD or WAN cards. And I thought, well, I looked online and some of the people were saying, no, that doesn't work. But I thought, what the heck? You know, I'll put it in there anyway. So I stuck it in, booted straight into the BIOS. BIOS could see it. Hmm. And uh, so I booted into Windows and I was able to format it and have both drives in there now. So Kit's very happy. That's right. pretty that's pretty awesome. So it's funny you mentioned that it's a, you know, a postage stamp size. That's the one thing that's that got to me when I was poking around the inside of my laptop is we're used to these the standard form factor for a laptop hard drive and they're just not doing that anymore. When they've gone to SSD, you know, solid state drives, now they're doing uh, they just look like little circuit boards. Yeah, and the typical uh, size of these things is 80 millimeters long which, you know, is like a big stick of gum. And when I say postage stamp for this computer, I mean it. Its form factor is 35 millimeters. It's a tiny thing. Wow. And that was what? The one you were moving around was a – no, were they both the same size physically? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So you had a terabyte in one and half a terabyte on the other. No, it was, it's half that. The, the largest they offer is a half terabyte. Ah, okay. And she had a quarter terabyte. And was like, eh, it's not really enough these days. Right. But now she has three quarters. Cool. cool. Yeah, it's really neat. I wonder if um, – I should look into this again sometime. It would make for a good tip sometime, uh, at some point. There was – there used to be a way in Windows NT, in the drive manager, to essentially take two drives – and I forget what the term is. I think it partition them together. Essentially, yes. You make one logical mm. drive out of multiple physical drives. Interesting. So you could instead of right now, you've probably got like a C and a D. Yes. And you could have instead a single bigger C. There's another way around that. It's just not as convenient. And that is, you can create a um, a mount point on your C file system that refers to the drive in D. So you can access it as a path as a path off of your C drive instead of needing to go to a different uh, drive letter. But uh, that's not quite the same, right? You don't have the flexibility of, of things just filling up as you know, the entire thing. You still need to understand which files are residing where. Yeah, well, she just put all her pictures and her music on the, on the little one and Oh, yeah, it's, it's totally manageable. I get it. It's just, you know, one of those, those things that, that I remember we used to be able to do that. Um, you know, there's a downside to it, right? Instead of um, you know, your entire C drive, when you've got it com combined the way that I was uh, describing, uh, your entire C drive now has twice the risk of failure. Because if either of the drives fails, then your entire C drive looks, looks bad. Mm, yeah. uh, so, you know, there's, there's pros and cons, but I just thought it was kind of interesting. Um, and the time to do that, of course, is before you've done everything you've done, <laughs> right. right? Before you've actually set everything up. But anyway, just thought I'd mention So that. The, there's two interesting things about this. The, um, the replacement drive came like it was originally installed. It had the four partitions with the Windows stuff in it, and it was the same Windows serial number as the old one which was actually kind of unexpected that it would be there at all. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I imaged the C drive on the, on the first one and then restored it to the C drive of the new one. Mm -hmm. And that did not overwrite anything. It still had its serial number and it booted right up and, and went. Yep. 
But the other thing that was kind of amusing is uh, apparently Dell now defaults to having BitLocker on, on the C drive. Which surprised me as well. That same thing happened to me on my laptop. I went to, you know, it was one of those things on my checklist that, you know, before I travel, I should probably turn BitLocker on. And when I got there, it was already on. Yeah. So the interesting thing was that when I put it in the other slot and then booted the computer up, the C drive was locked. And uh, it's like, okay. Not the C drive, but the old drive. Right. The, yeah, you, the, yeah. yeah, you were yeah. still running. The okay. D drive, I should say. Yeah. yeah. And it was a little bit of a conundrum because we didn't set it up, so we didn't put a password on it, so we didn't know what the password was. And there is a way to recover, but we didn't have that recovery key. And as you know, it's a big, long hex key. Right. Right, yeah. So, the the um, login ID was probably a login account. Your the login account you created when you first set up the machine is more than likely what was used um, to uh, to be the key for that drive. But at that point, a that's that's you know neither here nor there. If you needed to get to the data on that drive, there's probably ways we could have done it. But what you ended up doing was was by far the right thing to do. Yeah, and you know we are. I already had the data off it, so that wasn't yep. an issue. So uh, I just got a partition program and uh, made all the four partitions into one, uh, made it a big one, rebooted. BitLocker was still there. So I just said, okay, format, do a quick format in that drive. And it just wiped the drive and uh, was usable. And for the record, um, I'm not, I'm still not convinced that you actually needed a third party partition program. Um, the, uh, The partition manager, excuse me, disk manager in Windows Certainly Windows 10, I'm trying to remember exactly what version of Windows. Uh, at one point, it got better. It could do a few more things. Okay. And I suspect that uh, the steps that you took were things that could have been done, perhaps in a different order, uh, using the built-in tool. But, you know, you got your problem solved, and you were probably using a free tool anyway, so that's fine. Right, yeah, it was. Yeah. And um, it is Windows 10, and, of course, uh, I don't allow Windows Home in the house, so it's it's pro. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, it's funny because I was reading a few more articles today about uh, Windows Update. Uh, depending on which side of the of the uh, the panic bell curve you are on, with the upcoming release of what will be the 1903 uh, major Windows update, people are saying, "Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! You know, disable. Do what you need to do to turn off Windows Update, or delay this, or do that." Oh, and by the way, if you've got Home, nah, sorry. <laughs> So, yeah. Yep. Well, what you been doing, uh, Gary? Well, a couple things. Um, first is that I, I'm playing a game. Uh, yeah, I, I know, Leo, you've been talking about World of War. You're still doing War, World of Warcraft every once in a while, right? I am. Yeah, so I, I started playing a new game. <laughs> uh, it's a popular one called Red Dead Redemption 2. I did not play Red Dead or Red Dead Redemption, but I am playing Red Dead Redemption 2. So. Um, and it's interesting. It's a, I'm playing on the Xbox. It's Xbox and PlayStation. Uh, you know, it's pretty much state-of-the-art kind of thing. Uh, I would describe it as Grand Theft Auto in the Old West. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> are, you know, no cars. It's horses, and you're riding around. And it's 1899. And but you do lots of bad. You're not a you're not a good guy. <laughs> you get really. points for trampling people with your yeah, horses. Oh, that kind of you, thing? I, I, you can't help but trample people in the sense. 
it, I mean, your character is basically a bad guy with kind of uh, morality to him. You know, help his family, help his friends. Uh, you know, I don't know, freedom uh, above all else kind of thing. Um, but he definitely does rob stagecoaches, trains, banks, uh, kills people, uh, gets into scrapes, and then ends up shooting like 20 deputies. Um, and, you know, there's lots of human death in the game. So it's pretty violent, and you do end up trampling people. Matter of fact, you can't help but be bad because if you everything in the game, like when you pass by another character, a little thing will come up underneath, and it says, like, press X to choke. <laughs> or when you ride by a horse, it's like press X to jump horse, which is like means you jump from one horse to the other, you know, push the other guy off and steal his horse or steal a stagecoach or whatever it is. So everything is geared towards doing these crimes. Um, of course, there are other gangs that are less uh, moral than you <laughs> that uh, you're fighting, and the good guys, the the police or Pinkertons and even the sheriffs that you run are pretty crooked too. So it's not like you're, you're, uh, you know, just kicking kittens throughout the game. Um, it's just a, a rough world. It is interesting because there's two things about the game that are kind of like becoming standard or, or, you know, this game might be ushering in the standard. One is that it's an open world game. So there is a story, you know, there's the single player version of the game, which I'm going through now. I'm halfway through it's a story and you progress through it, but it's done in an open world setting. So it's not like older games where you, you're basically taking a few actions just to move the story forward. And that's all you can do. You have this big open world and you can run around in it and there's missions you can complete. And some of those missions move the story forward and others are just missions. So you can get money and then get a nicer horse or gun or something. Um, but you do feel a little bit more that you're in control of what you're doing. If you like hunting in this world, you can go out and shoot all sorts of beautiful creatures. If you don't like that, you can forget about it. And I'm not going to do the hunting missions. I'm just going to do the, you know, what, there's other missions you could do that are nonviolent or something. Um, so it, it gives you more control over the order in which you do things. And some of the decisions will affect the game in various ways. Uh, even down to things like if you leave your campfire burning, it could start a forest fire. And for the rest of the game, that bit of the forest is now just a charred ruin in your version of the game. That's funny because one of the, the things I've always wondered about, um, it's like the the most dramatic difference between something like Second Life, if you remember that, and even if yeah. that's still around, um, is that is. changes to the environment were persistent. A, you could make them, and yeah. B, they stuck around, which is unusual um, in the gaming sense, it's a really, really hard problem in general, uh, certainly for, for a true game. Uh, with Warcraft, for example, a lot of what you described sounds really familiar. You know, some, some quests advance the storyline, some don't. Some are just to go out and get more resources or whatever. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, sounds like fun. It's funny because I ended up installing Fortnite the other day. Oh yeah, yeah. I played because, Fortnite mm -hmm. just because I had to see what the what the the ruckus was all about, or battle royale, technically, right? Whatever. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, I didn't get very far because I I realized that okay, they do everything different, right? It's a different, completely different set of like movements and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't want to take the time right then to invest in figuring out what do I do next. But uh, but yeah, I was looking at expanding my horizons. Yeah. The uh, the other thing about. Um, Red Dead Redemption 2 is there's a second game mode where it is a multiplayer universe. 
And I actually haven't done that yet. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting what they did is they came out with the game as a regular single-player game uh, with all that stuff in it. And, you know, they, and they sold it for 50 bucks or whatever. And they didn't come out with the, oh, there's this other mode and you could walk around in this world with other people thing until later. Right. And it still actually says beta when if you try to go to it. I haven't, I, I'm kind of, I really want to finish the single player game first and then go into this multiplayer world. But it is interesting that, you know, this it, certainly neither is new. Having a multiplayer world isn't new and having a single player game where it's an open world where you can do everything in the order you want isn't new. Right. But it seems to be like that might become the pattern now after this game where that's what you do. You have an open world single player game and then you have a second mode which comes out later um, that is multiplayer. And the cool thing about coming out later and not actually even you know, having that as an initial goal of the game was that they already had hundreds of thousands of players. Right. That they were able to say all of a sudden, hey, there's a new mode, try it out and you can go on and do that. So they didn't have to like say, this is what it is, please player number one sign up, please player number two sign up. You know, they already were able to hit everybody with a, um, a, a feature because the game was in release. So, so anyway, it's kind of neat. I'll continue to play it. Uh, it's kind of fun, Old West stuff. Um, the other thing I did, completely different from that, is I read a book, a short book, called The Order of Time by Carlo Rovelli. And it is a book about physics. Um, and specifically about time. And it's probably the first such nonfiction book I've read where I didn't really grasp everything. Because uh, I've read, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson's books and Stephen Hawking's books and all of that. And, you know, usually I feel really proud of myself when I'm done. It's like, hey, I understood all that physics stuff. This time I read, read it and I was like, oh, um, hmm, okay. <laughs> time doesn't exist it's really about states of entropy and heat and quantum physics and uh, gravity doesn't exist either, but gravity is also everything. Uh, yeah, so uh, a lot of interesting stuff in there, and I feel I know a lot more about the current thinking in physics um, with you know the, the theoretical physicists working today. I kind of get where they are now, but I just don't understand all the concepts. Maybe a second reading might be... Uh, in you know in order uh, but what was interesting is i know a little bit about the history of physics and i know that physics really came physics and philosophy you know physics kind of came out of philosophy right what you know hundreds of years ago you know what is reality why are things like they are kind of kind of thing you know it was very philosophy based and then science branched off of philosophy and we got scientific method and you know actual mathematical equations to explain things and and all of that but physics uh always had this like you know i mean just even thinking of time what is time if time doesn't exist what is our what are our memories how do they fit in like who are we you know that kind of thing and i knew that physicists hundreds of years ago talked about this stuff and it was interesting to hear that physicists today still talk about this and it seems like they still can quote uh philosophers and come up with philosophical, you know, uh, I guess topics that match the physics topics that they're talking about, especially when talking about space and time and, and things like that. Anyway, it's a really good read uh, if you like physics. I guess it's the hot book right now to read, you know, in terms of that uh, stuff. 
And this reminds me of longitude, which Kevin brought up yeah. a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I actually started reading longitude uh, last week after he mentioned it. Um, I'm only a part way through, but it's a pretty, pretty interesting book. Yeah. I've ordered it, but I haven't started reading it yet. Yeah. Yeah. So, <clears throat> well, my weekend at least was all about training and in this case, I was the trainer and not the trainee. We, uh, the uh, uh, animal rescue group that I volunteer for, uh, Wasart, Washington, animal Res Washington State Animal Response Team, we're folks that go out and uh, pick up your horse when it can't get up or go fetch a, a dog that can't make it down a trail or has fallen over a cliff, that kind of rescue, literal rescue. We have uh, periodic training uh, for our members. And uh, it was two all, two uh, two days of all-day training, which uh, is, as you might imagine, really, really draining uh, when you're when you're one of the trainers. But it was an awful lot of fun. Uh, the, one of the reasons I'm mentioning it here is because uh, one of the things that I talk about in the training we use radios, and we've talked on the show here about um, ham radio periodically. I think we're all still hams, or or at least used to be hams in in one or two cases. Uh, and, you know, we, we're, we all understand the concepts of how to use a radio, what radios are good for, uh, what happens when your cell phone doesn't work, that kind of thing. And uh, it's, like I said, it's a component of, uh, of what we train at this, um, at this event over the weekend. Which actually leads me to the first thing I was going to talk about this evening, which I thought was just an awesome, awesome headline, because uh, it me it brings like you know 21st century technology together with this 20th, you know this this actually dawning of the 20th century technology. Bitcoin coders send international lightning payment over ham radio. Uh, in other words, uh, without use, we, we think of Bitcoin and, and digital cryptocurrency as being purely the realm of the Internet and things you do connected to the Internet. But in reality, um, it is nothing more than uh, you know, transaction. It doesn't really matter how the bits get from one place to another. And it just tickled me that uh, using uh, uh, HF, they're at 14... Uh, um, 14 uh, megahertz, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere in there. Uh, they transmitted a Bitcoin payment from Toronto to, I think it was San Diego, and uh, without using the internet at all. And it just that just cracked me up. The interesting thing, and I know one of the questions that a lot of people have about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency uh, in general is, you know, well, if somebody's listening to the transmission, which of course anybody can do, uh, does that mean they get a? Can't they get a copy of the money? What prevents it from being copied? Well, that's the crypto part of cryptocurrency, right? It's it's one of those things where you use public key cryptography so that only your intended recipient can decrypt the message that you send to them, and then um, apply that currency to their to their Bitcoin or whatever cryptocurrency wallet. And uh, so the same thing applies here. Again, it doesn't matter how the bits got over there. Uh, it's an encrypted blob that anybody can see, but only the intended recipient of the currency can decrypt and do anything with. So there's a theory that, or at least I'll put it this way. Some folks have been speculating that should a country 
decide to disconnect from the internet or shut down their the internet uh, entirely this would be another way of transferring cryptocurrency across borders because of course there's no way to block uh, you know you can interfere with but there's no real way to block uh, radio transmissions from entering the country so like i said thought it was kind of interesting it definitely it's, it's fabulous and the, the you know can somebody else intercept it was of course the question but of course people can intercept things on the internet too so they've got that figured out of course yeah that had to be solved before before cryptocurrency could even be a thing right because what most people i think most people realize but the bottom line is that all the bits you send from your computer to somewhere else uh, they can be seen in transit and the only way that what you have to say isn't seen is if it's encrypted somehow uh, the, the simplest form that we think of is HTTPS. So I might know that you're connecting to your bank, but I can't see the data, the actual, I can't understand the data that's being exchanged between you and your bank because it's all encrypted. You can go bigger with a VPN, encrypt everything between you and the VPN service provider. Um, but that same, that same concept then applies here to, uh, to cryptocurrency and what it means to actually send money around. Yep. So this ties in nicely with um, Kevin's not here tonight, but he sent us a URL. Uh, we talked about the guy who died with the passwords or the, the keys to $137 million in cryptocurrency. Supposedly that's now been recovered. At least the keys have been recovered and the money is gone. So interesting thing that, you know, they're talking about, did he fake his death again and all that kind of stuff. So, it's funny because we use that as a jumping point for a uh, discussion about, you know, back up your keys, you know, to always make sure you've got a way of, of recovering that kind of stuff. It actually goes back to your, uh, your BitLocker encrypted drive. I hope you actually did um, grab the, uh, the key for, the, for your current BitLocker encrypted drive and have it scrolled uh, yep. away somewhere. But the point was that, you know, yes, you should back up your keys. That point is still valid. <laughs> back up your keys. It just, in this case, that wasn't the real issue. Yeah. Well, so now the speculation, and we talked about this before, is what, what has happened? And, uh, you know, did he, is he really dead? Right? Right. Because, so we, it, supposedly he was in India, was it, where he disappeared? Or, or the yes. death certificate was issued? And apparently that's a really easy, I think it was, Randy, it was you that said it was a really easy country to fake your death in. Or to at least buy a death certificate that's been forged, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's the, I mean, I'm an Occam Razors kind of guy, and it's probably more likely that he actually is dead. And actually, I would say the most likely thing is that since there is missing money, a lot of missing money, uh, do, do, we know how, do we know how he died? Or, you know, did the death certificate say how he died or what's the story? I don't remember I, the details. I, mean, I vaguely remember it being some kind of a... Um, Crohn's disease? Was I, I want to say Crohn's, but then Crohn's itself doesn't necessarily kill you. It's, right. something, it's, it's something that you get because of or that Crohn make, Crohn's makes you um, more susceptible to. Uh, but it was something related to that. Yeah, I mean, it certainly could be the case, like a like a movie that he stole the money, faked his death, and has a new identity somewhere. 
Um, but it also could, and it could be the case that he just died exactly how he's supposed to, and that there's some other story that has to do with the missing money. Maybe somebody else has it. Um, or it could be that he did something with the money, and whatever he did didn't work out. He got scammed. He gambled it all away, whatever, and he actually uh, committed suicide uh, rather than face um, the, you know, what would have come after that had been discovered. Uh, so it's funny you mentioned Occam's razors. Honestly, I'm not sure which of those is the simplest solution. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking the suicide. They're all pretty well. They're all pretty complicated. I mean, they, they all they all have a have a number of things that have to come together to be true. Well, yeah. I like the idea that he really did die, and somebody had a copy of those keys and said, here's my opportunity and grab the money. I like that one too. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so we, we've come up with four plausible solutions in a matter It'd of be a great time. movie plot. <laughs> all of those would be, well, not all of those. I, I, <laughs> I don't know that just the, he just, I, I don't know, but I guess the, cause the money had to go somewhere, right? If the money's gone, then it, it appears that there, there's a hundred percent chance that somebody has it, right? It's not, like the kind of thing where somebody wrote down, uh, or, or you know, a Bitcoin number, or put a um, put it on a drive, and then the drive was destroyed. It's interesting it, because for a, a cryptocurrency, you you, in theory, you can't know who has the money, but you can still see the money because it's part of the public ledger, right? It's part of the blockchain ledger. If the money is quote unquote gone. That implies that somebody actually converted it from the cryptocurrency that it was in into real money. And one would assume, or, or into some other, other cryptocurrency, sure. Uh, but somewhere there would have to be some kind of a trail that says, you know, that says that's what happened. The interesting thing about cryptocurrency, again, as I understand it, is that you can identify the money specifically like a serial number on a dollar bill. You can see that serial number and that serial number number travels with the dollar bill. You just can't see who's holding the bill, but you can see that it's moving from one place to another. Um, so one would assume that you should be able to see the money moving somewhere. And like I said, if it moved out of the cryptocurrency that it happened to be in, it seems like there would be some kind of a track record of, I don't know, some kind of an exit or, or something. Well, yeah, if it had been cashed out through a, a wallet, it's like, it's, like, it's like money. If somebody had taken that dollar bill, like you said, and bought something with it right. or just exchanged it for another currency, it could be you know anywhere now, and it has nothing to do with where it originally was. Um, yeah, right. So. But the, the, the problem with the cryptocurrency is that you can see the serial number and you can see that it's been changing hands. You just can't see whose hands they are. Yeah. Yeah. So, there's so a how does that there. work with fractionals? Um, I, I have like 0. 0.00012 bitcoins. Yeah, so do I. And how does that work where, you know, if I throw it in a wallet somewhere or I use it to, you know, maybe it's worth 12 bucks and I use it to buy 12 bucks worth of something. They do do fractional Bitcoin. I mean, of all of these cryptocurrencies in reality um, are, are not um, atomic. In other words, you, you can divide them and often you can divide them uh, very, very small. I'm not sure what the smallest amount like a Bitcoin specifically can be divided into, uh, but it is, you know, less than a penny kind of a thing. Right so now. does the fractional 
uh, serial number, if you will, get derived from the whole Bitcoin or coin? Uh, it's the, and therefore so you can you can track it. That the, way? Ser- the serial number the serial number metaphor breaks down because in reality, what you're tracing are transactions. So okay. you can mm. see this Bitcoin come into a transaction, and then you can see two pieces of Bitcoin come out in a sense. And you can continue to track all of those um, uh, things, both as they split and as they aggregate later on. So it's like when you tr- trade in your $20 bill, they give you two tens, and right. now we know what those serial numbers are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. So. Mm. Yeah, it's right. kind of, in, in a lot of ways, it's like, you know, we trade in dollars, but we can buy things for less than a dollar. Same idea. Right. So. So let's change gears. Um, I think that the number one thing that Donald Trump can do to be to, to raise his approval level is to get rid of daylight saving time. <laughs> does, does the president have the power to do that? I, I don't know, but he could, you know, if, if anybody's going to just bluff it through, it would be him. Say, um, just write an executive order and it'll be Exactly. Done. Maybe, yeah. So, Declare an emergency, a time emergency. <laughs> I, I noticed that, that a lot of the news outlets that are talking about this, because several states have moved to get rid of it, right. have said they want to get rid of daylight saving time, but actually it's not really what they want to do. They want to go on daylight saving time permanently. They want to get rid of standard time. Right. Well, it would be getting rid of daylight savings time and making standard time. The standard. The, no, the, making daylight savings time. The yeah, standard. the standard, calling it standard time, and then, we, and then we no longer refer to either one. It's just the time. Just time. We'll never oh. talk about that again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's one of the most annoying things about daylight savings time is I can never remember if we're on it or off it. And when I want to um, tell somebody what time zone I'm in, because I live in the, the, the time zone that nobody even knows exists, and the same one Randy lives in, mountain time zone. And um, you know, you would say MST, Mountain Standard Time, or MDT, Mountain Daylight Time. And I can never remember which one I'm on. So when I tell somebody, I just say I'm on Mountain Time, which is not <laughs> correct. But it saves me from having to look it up. It's close enough. Well, especially when you're talking to someone in the United States. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever, whatever you're on, you've all switched at the same time, right? Or... Uh, you know, the person lives in an area like what is it, Arizona, where they haven't been doing it anyway. Portions of Arizona, portions, yeah. Only so portions. they, yeah, so they know where to, uh, you know, what to look for. Uh, yeah, Washington is one of the states that's looking at um, adopting daylight saving time permanently, and uh, I don't know if the politicians have the guts to do it. I, I it's <laughs> funny. There, there's objections, right? There's, and it's it's from weird places that I really don't understand. Uh, but I'm certainly hopeful that it'll happen. I would love to do it. Now, the big, the big driver for us is if California were to do it. And they have. They have? I believe they, they're one of the ones that uh, have voted for it. They've been talking about it, but whether they've actually done it, are you sure? Well, the problem is that they basically have to get permission from the feds to actually do it. So it's it's a little shaky, but I I believe that um, if it goes through for California, that I predict that both Oregon and Washington will fall really quickly, so that the entire West Coast is on the same time zone. Well, in, in the All article time. I'm linking to, it says in November, California voters passed Proposition Seven by a sixty to forty percent margin, paving the way for year-round daylight saving time. Good, good, good. The voters did it. 
If you ever want a, an interesting little Wikipedia read, look up daylight savings time on Wikipedia and read the section on places in the U.S. where there have been different competing laws. You know, it's just interesting. Little towns, some states that have some, had some weird things, like certain years, like in you know Michigan in 1972 didn't have it for some reason. Uh, you know, Indiana had a weird thing where they did had it and then they didn't have it and then they went back again. Uh, Arizona's got some weird stuff going on. There's like all these weird legal exceptions that have happened in the past over time, and it's interesting. Interesting to read. The one that cracks me up is that there are some places, and this is not necessarily. It's more time zones than it is daylight savings time. Folks that are off by half an hour. Yeah, yeah. There's a That's whole area of Australia. Weird. The difference. Yeah. I've been to that area of Australia. That that was like the biggest thing for me in that area. As I'm driving through, it's like I'm a half hour off of everybody else in the world. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> I think I sent postcards to everybody from there. Well, programming <laughs> would be a lot easier if you didn't switch oh, time zones. I don't think you'd find a computer scientist like myself that would would be against just setting everything uh, to be in you know one way to go, whether it's standard or daylight. Matter of fact, you know we'd probably all be in favor of there being a world time, which you know is really see, baby. UTC. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it, believe me, you, everybody would get used to it in like, like a week. We'd all be used to it. Oh, um, no. Nobody no. would, nobody <laughs> would do it. Oh, no. Everybody would freak out that, you know, oh, no, we can't do that. I can't. The middle of the afternoon can't be 5 a.m., you know. I, I can't get up at 3 in the afternoon, even in the quote unquote in the afternoon. Yeah. It, would, it, <laughs> it would just be, it would, yeah, because you wouldn't, you wouldn't say probably like, I don't know. A.M. P.M. We come. We probably just twenty-four. Hour, I don't know. You, gotta, you, you switch to military-style time. Yeah. Yeah. If you're gonna if you're gonna do one, you gotta do the other. Yeah. Do the whole thing, and then there's no more confusion. Everybody's on the same time, and it'll be so much easier. And uh, yeah. And yeah. You know what? Never gonna happen. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Well, China is on a yeah know, nationwide time, and they're they're very wide, so that they would normally have a lot of different time zones. Right, and there, and you know, it's funny because if if any country would be willing or able to do something, it would be a country like China that's already basically adopted a countrywide time zone. Yeah, uh, but uh, but yeah, I just you know, it no, it's just not going to happen. I wish. Um, getting, I'll, I'll be happy if we get rid of daylight saving time. The problem there is, of course, that we're not doing that planet wide either, which means that our relationship to other time zones outside of our area continue to remain complex now just in new and unique ways well i don't think i mean not all countries even have daylight savings time right i mean there's well, europe has summertime right That's summertime they, is what they, they call, call it summertime yep and it's yeah. of course the transition date is a different day than ours of course of course it's usually a few weeks or a few, a few weeks after or a few weeks before i don't even remember anything. well our transition days changed what was it right. five years ago or something yep and and that messed up a lot of if you had a clock yeah. Uh, and I think I have one that they had just basically programmed into the hardware of the clock because there's no software that, you know, every daylight savings time transition for the next hundred years based right. on the old formula, you, you know, you have basically have to turn off the daylight saving time feature on that clock and right. just do it manually from now on. I, I, I have uh, a weather station that's got it all programmed into the firmware. It's, yeah. It's a pain because during that time that's between the real time and the used to be time, uh, it's off by an hour unless I get into the, to it and right. manually set the time. Yep, yep. I run into this with my cousin in Holland all the time. We, you know, we chat, I've, you know, 
occasionally over WhatsApp and we make sure that, you know, we understand, okay, when are you changing? When am I changing? What's happening? So, well, and what I do is I get on Google and say, what time is it in Amsterdam? Actually, <laughs> one, of, one of the tips for the Ask Leo tip of the day is uh, how to set a second clock in your toolbar. Uh, so you can, uh, in fact, watch, you know, very quickly. I can tell you that right now the time in Amsterdam, uh, or UTC actually, is 1.48 a.m. As we're, as we're recording. You know, one thing that's changed uh, in the modern world uh, is we used to have the thing where after you turn the clocks back, or no, you, after you put them forward, people would show up an hour late to work on Monday. Mm-hmm. and complained, oh, I forgot to change my clocks, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was BS <laughs> for the most part because <laughs> you had all day Sunday to figure that out, right? It's not right. like it was – And but people would look at it as a way they could get away with coming in late on a Monday morning. Now with our phones doing this automatically, it's like, oh, come on. No, um, you're telling me you didn't look at your phone all day. You didn't use the alarm on your phone. Forget about it. I think it was interesting back when people made up that excuse that when we set our clocks back, nobody ever showed up early on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Not one. There was never a single person in the history of the world that showed up early after the. Where is the everybody? Yeah. yeah. No. No. But like half the workforce showed up late on Monday after the set forward. So. And I have a friend in Phoenix or thereabouts that is in the area that does not do daylight saving time, and she was gritching on uh, Monday that Verizon changed her phone even though she's not in a zone that changed. And she was just spitting nails at them because I think it screwed up her schedule somehow too. I think it's a setting in your phone, I think. I don't know. Well, you kind of sort of want your phone. I mean, if I remember right, your phone can either say automatically set to the local time or don't, which means you are 100% responsible for, for the time on your phone. And the problem is, I mean, even if it's, you know, it may synchronize to the minute, but it's not going to do any automatic hour changes. And I think that applies also when you travel. So if, you, if she travels, for example, she wants Verizon to be setting the right time so that it's, you know, when you land in a new airport, a different time zone, it automatically updates. Um, and if, you know, apparently she would have to turn that feature off probably to avoid Verizon screwing with your time zone at home. And I always put, when I do a business trip, I will put in my destination appointments as, you know, noon or whatever. I don't pay attention to the time zones. It's going to be noon whether I'm here or there. And the calendar in a lot of phones, especially in the old days, would assume local time. So if it was noon in Colorado and you get to your appointment in California, it would, the alarm would go off at 11 a.m. Right. And that ain't so. But so I, I finally got into Google and figured out how to set it so that whatever I put in, it's in the local time. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't change the time zone. So I can't remember exactly how I did. I probably just set everything to to mountain time, but uh, that could be. Yeah, one of the things when I travel, I never change the time zone on my laptop. Never. Um, yeah. I'm always I'm always running Pacific time, and I will. Uh, you know, I'll use my phone to understand what time it is locally. But yeah, I do basically what you did. It's funny because it's it's a solvable problem, right? I mean, all you really need to do is store all of your dates and times in surprisingly UTC, and then translate on display, right? Just 
apply the local time zone to whatever number is being stored, and that's the number you have. That's the number you want. That way you've got the right time, you know, planet-wide. But apparently that's too hard for some. Yep. Yep. All right, I think we've beaten that to death. We're out of time on it? No, no. Until next no. time. <laughs> Until next time, yes. So, Gary, Apple has uh, time to do something. Oh, yeah. So this is, uh, this is an interesting story, and it's in the middle of taking place because it, it broke a couple weeks ago, but it actually doesn't happen until a few weeks from now. Um, Apple's closing two of their Apple stores, which usually would be news. It's like, what? Closing? They're, they open stores all the time. They don't really close stores. Um, but uh, the deal is they're closing two stores in Texas that happen to be in what's called the Eastern District of Texas. Um, because that happens to be the district where all the patent trolls file their their claims. So some background here, a patent troll, if you don't know what that is, is basically a company or individual that holds a patent and doesn't actually do anything with it except sue other people. Um, so they you know, g- gather up a patent from a company that's no longer around or they patent something themselves and they uh, then look around for companies that may be violating this patent usually without knowing it, and then just sue them just to get money, you know, just to make them go away. Um, the, uh, a lot of times they take something in the patent that is very vague because it was given to them before the technology was really well known, uh, you know, before the patent office really understood this new technology. So they take a, a, an area from it that sounds vague and they say, well, that applies to us, all cell phones or all software that does this or whatever. Anyway, and then they sue. And a lot of times, of course, judges will look at it and say, that's ridiculous. That's an obvious idea or that is, um, you know, clearly not what the patent's about and throw it out. But the, the Eastern District of Texas is the one most favorable for federal patent lawsuits uh, to the patent troll. Uh, just, I guess, some district has to be, right? If you rank them all, one is going to be the most favorable to the trolls, and uh, you know that's where they're going to want to file. Well, they changed the rules a couple of years ago about where you could file. And you know, I think before you could just basically say, hey, this affects people throughout the entire United States, so we could file it anywhere. Um, or just find somebody that lives there that says, yeah, this is making me angry. So I want to, I, I'll, I'll be the person that signs and says you can file it here in Eastern Texas. But they changed it uh, so that you actually, the company that you're suing actually has to have some sort of location. Nexus. Yeah, Nexus. So Apple, of course, uh, a lot of companies do. It's a, it's a big Eastern District of Texas. is pretty big. But Apple, I guess, looked around and said, well, the only thing we actually have there is two Apple stores. And these are in the Dallas area. We could move these. So they're actually closing those two stores. They're opening up at least one just over the line <laughs> in Dallas. So serving basically the same area, but not being part of Eastern District of Texas. Uh, Apple didn't come out and say, hey, we're doing this to you know, uh, stop these patent trolls. But it's kind of obvious that what they're doing and people have hinted at it um and these store these will be closed i guess in april they said the, they're relocating their employees either to that new store or finding other opportunities for them so they hope not to lay anybody off or have anybody be out of a job because of the move and i think it's pretty smart i mean i hate yeah. patent trolls i as a software guy the software has hit more with patent trolls than almost any other thing because you could just take any piece of software you want 
10 years ago, you could just send it to the patent office. They could be like, uh, I don't know, signed off on it. And then you could just go through it and say, oh, I've got something in here that alphabetizes whatever. And I bet you they do that. You know, bet you Qualcomm does that or Microsoft does that. And then Sue. And software is just something that I guess the original people that thought of the idea of patents really didn't, uh, didn't conceive of. And it gets a little more pernicious than that because they don't necessarily sue right away. They send a bill saying, hey, you're violating our patent. You, we're mm. demanding a license fee. And if you're a small company, you're terrified because you know just fighting it could cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they're only asking for 25000 So you might just pay it to make them go right. away, which then they have a portfolio of companies that pay. They say, hey, look, Microsoft paid, Apple paid. You think you don't have to pay? Come on. And uh, they just, they start upping the ante as they get these under their belt. Mm-hmm. Gary, I think you got it exactly right. It's, it goes back to, I mean, I, I actually have one of the first patents uh, that Microsoft filed. And the comment that I made when it was awarded was that I had lost a lot of faith in the patent system <laughs> when they awarded it. <clears throat> Because there's a couple of things that it has to be, that a a patent has to, a patentable idea has to have. And one of them is it has to be, uh, what is it, non-obvious to a practitioner in the field or something like that, right? No prior art. We know about prior art. That's easy. Uh, So, but the the problem is, of course, uh, the patent um, reviewers, the folks back at the patent office, they're not software engineers. They, you know, for the most part, they don't get this. And it's easier for them to award the patent and then let it, you know, let the courts figure it out. Um, and once you get to court, of course, especially if you literally go to court to have a, a jury trial, which has happened, uh, then uh, the jury is not full of software engineers. They're not the folks that really understand what's going on here. They're relying on the ability of prosecution and defense to try and explain this stuff in, uh, in to term, lay people to lay people in terms that they can understand, which, as we know, is an incredibly difficult problem in the best of circumstances. So, yeah, it's it's a mess. It really is, and a lot of the patents on software honestly should not be patents, either because there is clear prior art or uh, because, you know, to be honest, a good software engineer would have done exactly that. Uh, And, you know, so, yeah, like the patent patent that I um, got, the first one, uh, which has since lapsed, right? The patent has a 17-year lifespan, and it's been more than much. But it can be renewed for another 17 years. Uh, Can it be renewed or does it require um, uh, additional changes? So no, pat- it, can, it can be renewed. Just flat out renewed? Yep. Oh, I Interesting. Didn't know that. I did not know that but either. You can only renew it once. Interesting. Uh, well, then, I, I don't know that they did, but if so, we're still, we're probably coming up on the 34-year mark at this right. point. Um, the, um, uh, the patent was simply taking three existing compression algorithms and combining them. That's it. That, was, that is that's, pretty simple, isn't it? That, it's really simple. Um, and, and, you know, and it frankly sounds obvious. And that's the thing, right? That's why I lost faith. Right? <laughs> and what's funny is that we actually did file a second patent on a modification of that technique. And that patent was awarded as well. So it's, like I said, I understand the need for, for intellectual property protection. I really do. 
but uh, the patent system, especially when it comes to software, is seriously, seriously broken, and it's patent trolls that are taking advantage of it in the worst way. Yeah, I actually got uh, way back in the 90s, after I first started putting games online, I got hit with a, uh, you know, by one of these patent trolls. And the amazing thing was, um, and I guess the real weak point is, when they send these things out, they're actually sending it to, to one of the few people that actually knows what the deal is, like with the technology. Like the courts may not know, the patent office may not know, but if you're hit with one of these, you're probably hit with it because, like in my case, I had developed a game. So I really knew the technology. So when I got the, the, the you know, cease and desist, pay us a license fee, you know, we'll sue you letter and all of that, I was able to look at the patent and understand the patent <laughs> because it's my field right. and look at it and see that uh, while the title of the patent was something that sounded like, oh, this could apply to me, even though it was very vague. It was basically online card games. Um, <laughs> when I... What, and that's what they were saying. Is basically we have a patent on online card games. When I actually read the patent, the patent was on something very specific that I wasn't doing. Matter of fact, it was for multiplayer, like ranking systems for card games. My game was called Solitaire. <laughs> <laughs> there was no ranking system. There was none of that. So, you know, I thought that was funny. It was like, obviously, they just, the, the team or whatever was just like, find everybody that has any, any online card games and has a company name and send out this. And the thing was, that I, you know, I'm glad I uh, didn't try to do anything because I just kind of waited and I found out uh, that other people I knew in the industry were getting the same letter. So I was like, oh, okay, they're not targeting me. They're sending this out to hundreds of people. And uh, I still didn't do anything. And the Electronic Frontier Foundation decided to jump in, yep. and uh, which did a few things. Uh, first of all, they were successful in getting the patent dismissed or invalidated or whatever. Um, uh, one of the funny things is, is they hit people like me with like requests for prior art. And they were like, well, if you have any prior art. Um, and I think by the time I got back to them, they were like, we're good. Uh, the funny thing was, my game actually was predated the prior art date. So the thing they were suing me for was actually prior art. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, you know, it's one thing if you oh. can find some old game. But it was like the thing you're suing me for is actually prior art to your patent. So um, if, if you had, in fact, been in violation, yeah. your violation would have invalidated their patent. Exactly, yeah. So, <laughs> and, uh, but the other thing it did was it really got me to it, – it made me aware of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Right. And I've been an annual donor since then. Because basically for that entire thing, I didn't have to do – I just ignored it. I said, okay, looks like they got this under control, and I didn't do a thing. I didn't participate in any of the stuff. I didn't have to help. I didn't have to do anything, and it was all gone. And I was like, that's great, and if they helped me, they're probably helping a lot of other people like me. And uh, they may not be a perfect organization, but they deserve my support, and I've been supporting them ever since. And I have a, oh, like a wardrobe full of T-shirts <laughs> to prove it because every time you give every year, they send you a T-shirt. So Although I, I, I do the same thing and I usually decline the t-shirt. Yeah, I've started, I did that for the last three years. And then this year they actually came up with an interesting design for one. <laughs> Cause usually it's just black and it says EFF or has something right. uh, slogan on it. And they came out with like a red shirt with a cool piece of art drawn by somebody. And I was like, Oh, actually, I, I want that. <laughs> so I checked the box and I have the current. Interesting. Version. Cause I think I'm on some kind of an auto 
play thing with them. So yeah. they're not they're not giving me an opportunity for teaching oh. every year. <laughs> but yeah, I've, I'm with you guys. I've I've been supporting them now for at least a couple of years, uh, for any number of different reasons. This being another good one. So. Yep. Cool. Well, I think uh, it's a good place to wrap it up. All right, I just agree. more or less. And a quick note that we're not going to have a show oh, yes. next week because we're going to be doing other things. We're going to be out shopping for headsets for Leo. That's right. So, <laughs> so do send us your uh, recommendations for good quality headsets like make, consumer type. Make Leo sound better. Yeah, because Leo is really sounding thin. And, yeah, I mean, thin, to, is, thin is good. I'm happy with, with my weight, but I, should, I, I know, would but like my voice to be a little heavier. You need to have a robust voice. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh62. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at the TEH Podcast. We would appreciate your rating us in whatever app you use to listen to us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again here next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.